You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. In James Gleek's book, Time Travel, A History, a book that admittedly has sat on my shelf for about two and a half years, and I have read about two pages of, but I like him. He's a good author, and I like the way that he writes. I just haven't really got around to it yet. You know what I mean? But in his book, Time Travel, he references another book that I, in fact, have not read. But I'm sure it's really good. It's a story by science fiction legend Ray Bradbury called A Sound of Thunder. And in this story, it centers around a group of people who have a machine, a time machine, in fact. And with this time machine, they offer time travel safaris. And so if you have the right amount of money, then you can pay the money, you can get on the time machine, and they take you on a tour back through history. But in addition to having this miraculous, amazing technology, they also have some pretty important standards. And it says that, he says that the safari op- operators were very careful about leaving anything, un- anything changed. It says they worried about the history. And this is a quote from Bradbury's story. It says a little error here would multiply in 60 million years, all out of proportion. A dead mouse here makes an insect imbalance there. A population disproportion later, a bad harvest further on, a depression, mass starvation. Perhaps only a soft break, a whisper, a hair, pollen in the air. Such a slight, slight change that unless you looked close, you wouldn't see it. Who knows? He continues to say an exquisite thing, a small thing that could upset balances and knock down a line of small dominoes and then big dominoes and then gigantic dominoes all down the years across time. And this is a common theme when you think about time travel in books, in movies, in TV shows. As long as people have been talking about time travel, there's been a very apprehensive feeling about it. Because there's this belief that if you adjust one small thing, this this butterfly effect, that it could have ripples, that one small thing that changes in the timeline could drastically affect everything that comes after it in ways that are unpredictable and unimaginable. But now imagine if it was something big, a major historical event, something that changed a large group of people, something that changed an entire culture, something that shaped an entire community, something that's written about in the history books, or what if it was something that radically changed the entire world as we know it and even eternity itself? What if when Mary and Mary had gone to that tomb early that Sunday morning, they found the stone still there, And they had to ask the guards to roll it away so that they could go and prepare the body of a dead Jesus Christ. Everything would change. Everything about our world would be radically different from anything that feels familiar, especially for those who put their hope in Jesus. And so... It's no surprise that Paul 
understood the importance of the historical reality of the resurrection. And that created a bit of a conflict in his letter to the Corinthians. Because the people in Corinth had not an alternate history, but they had an alternate theology that was creating in their midst an alternate reality about what it meant to be a follower of Christ. Because the people in Corinth didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe that anyone could be raised from the dead, and yet they still proclaimed Christ and claimed to be followers of Jesus. And so in comes Paul to show them the damage that can come from that belief and the overwhelming desperation that would come in a world where Christ was still in the grave. And so he lays out for them the power, the hope, and the reality of the resurrection. And we need to pay attention. And so coming today from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12 through 27, This is the word of God. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of life. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. May God add his blessing and the favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, you are good and you are powerful and you have conquered the grave in Christ Jesus. And God, now we ask that you help us to understand the reality of the resurrection and that it would permeate who we are, what we do, and every moment and aspect of our lives. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So I've spoken before about how bizarre it is to watch my wife crochet. It's a weird thing where she takes the yarn and this little hook. And then by doing this thing, it looks kind of like this. I think this is pretty amazing technique. Maybe I could do it too. 
probably not. It seems really difficult. And so she takes this yarn, she takes this hook, and then she crafts it into this thing. Whatever it is, whatever's in her head, she crafts it and shapes it into it. And what's amazing is all of that comes from, in essence, one thread, one strand of this yarn. And I know I've mentioned this before because one of the most insane things to watch in my life is when she's been working on this large project and then she'll look back and she'll see this one spot where she missed this one thing and decides that she's going to undo two and a half hours of work sometimes to go back and to make it perfect and to make it right. And then this large thing that has this shape and this beauty and this quality to it, she just takes that one thread and begins to pull and the whole thing unravels. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul looks at the theology of the Corinthians and they make the claims of things that look like Christianity. They make the thing, the claim that they are followers of Christ, but they've missed a really important stitch early on. And so Paul grabs this string on which their entire theology is based and he begins to unravel it bit by bit. In verse 12 and 13, he says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And so the Corinthians believe that there was no bodily resurrection from the dead and yet still proclaim to believe in the gospel of Christ Jesus died and raised from the dead. And Paul is saying, what are you saying? Don't you understand that that is, is so logically incoherent, that that is so radically in opposition to what we see taught in the word of God, that what we see taught and communicated through the scripture, Paul saying, you're missing the boat entirely. But what had happened is because they grew up under this mentality and this dogma that people don't come back from the dead, that there is no resurrection, this Hellenistic Greek understanding of life and philosophy, their concern was more with their own dogma and their own doctrine than the truth of the gospel. And so they ignored the places where their doctrine conflicted with the truth of the gospel and they just tried to integrate it all together. But what they created was actually a false gospel and they had built their faith on a fragile foundation. And all it took was Paul pulling one string and the whole thing begins to crumble. And this is an important reminder for us, especially for those of us that have grown up maybe inside of the church, have grown up with a certain set of beliefs or structures or systems or dogmas. If we find a place where our doctrines, our systems of theology and our dogmas, no matter how dear they are to us, to those that we love and admire, or even to our traditions, if at any point in time, those things cause us to ignore, neglect, or deny a claim of scripture or a truth of the gospel, then it's our doctrine that needs to change. Because what happens is when Christians take flimsy doctrines and hold them tightly, it creates flimsy Christians. When we build our theology, when we build our faith, when we build our practice, not on the truth of the gospel and on the word of scripture, but on things that we've heard and things that we've believed and things that have been taught to us that don't resonate with scripture. When we build our life on those, it's like Jesus telling us about the man who built his house on the sand. That the minute the elements change, 
The minute something difficult comes along, the minute an opposition comes that stands against it, it washes the sand off the bottom. It pulls that string and the whole thing begins to crumble. And so Paul shows them the butterfly effect or the dead mouse effect here of their theology. How this one missing link in the chain has set the whole thing off and created not just an alternate theology, but an alternate identity for these people who claim to be followers of Christ and yet are lacking one of the most crucial elements of the gospel. And so let's look at what he says here. And this gets a little bit riddleish sounding. But he says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And here's the ripples. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we've testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And then he sums it all up with the big end of that effect saying, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul says, let's walk through this. You believe that there's no resurrection of the dead. And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then that means not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, first and foremost, our preaching is useless. What we're doing here this morning, what I'm doing right now, anytime that you talk about Christ Jesus and all these things, every time that in your social media this morning, you said Christ is risen indeed, or this Friday when you said it's Friday, but Sunday's coming, none of that means anything if Christ has not been raised from the dead. There's no point in coming to church digitally or in person. There's no point in following these creeds or dogmas. There's no point in spending any time in scripture. There's no power in our preaching and it's a useless waste of our time. But he says, not only that, but your faith is worthless. This faith that you have in Jesus doesn't mean anything if Christ is still in the tomb. If Christ had not been raised from the dead, there is no salvation. There's no point. There's no meaning to our faith. It's just useless, worthless beliefs. But even more than that, if Christ had not been raised from the dead, then we are blasphemers. And blasphemy is a big deal. Because if there is a God, then he is who he is, not who we say he is. That his characteristics and his actions are his own and we don't get to determine what those are. And so if we're going around here saying that Christ has been raised from the dead and Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we are speaking a lie about the God who created the universe. And that is a very, very dangerous place to live. And he continues to say that if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then we are unforgiven. There is no forgiveness for our sins. And it doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter the code or the dogma or the social norms that we live by or the morality that we have. It doesn't matter how much we read the Bible. It doesn't matter how much we do any of these things. There is no hope for us because if Christ had not been raised from the dead, there is no salvation for sins. And because of that, we would be some pitiful people. In fact, he says, that if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. And so Paul says to us and to the Corinthian church here, if your hope 
is not founded in the reality of the resurrection, the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus, then you have no hope at all. But, I love it when Paul says but, because it's almost always a good thing. Sometimes it's not, but in this case, it is. Verse 20 says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And he goes on to tell us that not only has Christ been raised, not only is he the first fruit of the resurrection, he is certainly not the last. And that all those who follow after him will be able to participate in a resurrection like his. And Paul doesn't just say that as a matter of fact without giving any evidence. But if we go back to the beginning of this chapter and we look at verses three through eight, he puts some fact in his faith. He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins and according with the scriptures. That Good Friday is a reality that Christ offered himself as a sacrifice and that he was buried, that he was physically, literally dead. But he continues saying that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. And so Paul says, I've seen him. I have seen the resurrected Christ, but it's not just me. I can tell you about others who can. In fact, I know 500 people who saw him at the same time. And if you want to go find them, I can give you some names of those who are still alive. And you can go talk to people who saw the resurrected Christ. And because of that, because Christ is raised from the dead, then all of those ifs are radically changed. And the resurrection has a ripple effect like nothing else this world has ever seen. Because if Christ is raised from the dead, then that means that our preaching is powerful. Those women, when they went to the tomb, they didn't find it sealed up. But the reality is they found the stone rolled away. And when they went inside, there was no body laying there. But as they started walking and being amazed at what that looked like, Christ himself appeared to them. And they saw the hope of the gospel standing before them. And they were given the instructions to go tell the others. And so the women went and they told the disciples and Peter and John ran to the tomb to find it empty. And they went and confirmed what the women had saw. And then those apostles began to tell other people. And then we see Peter standing in Jerusalem after the ascension of Christ. And as he preaches the death and the resurrection of Jesus, thousands of people put their faith and their hope in Christ. And we see that there is power in the preaching of the gospel, power in the preaching of the resurrection. And the message of the gospel of Christ, crucified and raised from the dead, it has the power to wake the dead, to take what is spiritually dead within us and resurrect us and renew us and regenerate us. It has the power to save broken and hurting sinners. It has the power to heal us of the guilt and the shame and the effects of sin in our lives. If Christ is risen, then we have to believe that there is real power in the proclamation of the resurrection. 
And that any time we utter those words that Christ is risen, that there is Holy Spirit power moving through those words. And it has the power to not only change lives, to not only change communities, but to shape and change our world and eternity. And so we have a responsibility to get to work proclaiming. And every time we do believe that there is power in those words, because if Christ is raised from the dead, then our preaching is empowered by the resurrection. But not only that, if Christ is raised from the dead, then our faith is life-giving. If Christ is raised, the words that he spoke on the cross are true. It is finished. And when he uttered those words, he didn't simply mean his sacrificial work. He didn't mean that part of salvation was finished or his role in salvation was finished and now the ball was in our court. But when Jesus uttered those words, it is finished, and then he rose from the tomb, we're reminded that there is nothing more to be done. There is no law to be fulfilled. There's no works to accomplish for salvation that Christ has fulfilled that in full. And so maybe you're here this morning and you are trying to work or buy your way to God. You just think if I could just live life the right way, if I could just check these boxes, if I could just be a good enough person, or maybe if I just gave enough to church or I showed up enough to church, then maybe God will love me and maybe God will save me. No, the hope of the gospel is that we don't offer anything that Christ has done everything that could possibly be done. Paul says that while we were dead in our sins and trespasses, God has made us alive through Christ. And he does that by grace, through faith and faith alone, so that none of us can boast because we don't have works that can stand anyway. And so whether you're here and you feel like you have dug yourself into a place where there is no way that God could save you, or if you find yourself in a place thinking that you can do enough to earn that salvation, recognize that both of those things are lies and the truth is much better. That Christ died as a sacrifice for your sin and raised from the dead to do something that we could never fathom being able to do. And he offers that salvation as a free gift that comes by nothing more than by putting our faith in Christ Jesus and trusting in him for the forgiveness of our sins. The resurrection gives life affirming, life saving qualities to our faith. And it moves it from empty belief to saving affirmation. And so if you're here and you've never put your faith in Christ, I want to encourage you to follow after Jesus, to know that it's a free gift that he offers up to you, to put down your works, to put down your guilt and your shame, to recognize your sin, but to put it in the hands of the God who can forgive. And if that's you and you've never put your faith or hope or in Jesus today, I want to encourage you to take a kind of bold step and just write in the comment section below that you need to follow after Christ and that you want that life-saving faith and you want that salvation that comes from Jesus. And for our Redeeming Grace folks, members and, and deacons and community group leaders, I want you to watch. And if that comes up, I want you to spend some time. I don't even if you need to leave this broadcast right now to minister to and to love and to care for those people and talk to them about what it means to follow after Christ. If maybe you're not ready to do that, then I want to encourage you when this service is over today, you can send me a message through social media. You can send me an email 
Or you can call me or text me at any time. And we'll talk about what it means to follow after Christ and to recognize that he has done it all for you so that you can have eternity with him. Because because Christ is raised from the dead, this faith is life-giving. And on the other side of that, because Christ is risen, that means that we become children of God. Before Paul got to this point, we know that he was a persecutor of the church. That he was going from town to town seeing Christians put to death. And he wasn't doing that just because he was a mean guy. He wasn't doing that even out of jealousy. But he was doing it out of piety. Because you see, Paul was seeing these people that were going around saying something about God that he didn't believe to be true. And he recognized them as blasphemers saying, you're going around saying that Jesus is God, but that clearly can't be the case. And so Paul was going around and bringing that persecution until he met the resurrected Jesus and saw the truth for what it is. And he did that because blasphemy is serious business. Again, we're we're making a claim about God. And anytime we do that, we need to make sure that we are making the right claim about who God is. But we are not blasphemers when we present Christ as the son of God, crucified and risen again, because Christ is raised from the dead. And because of that, it means that our identity is forever changed when we put our faith and our hope in him. This is our God, the one who were, while we were yet sinners, came to where we were emptied himself of his deity, came and put on human flesh and blood, walked around, fulfilled the law on our behalf and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and then was raised again to the newness of life to give us the hope of salvation. And when we trust and believe in that truth, not only does our faith save us, but it gives us a new identity. We go from blasphemers who were made in the image of God, but don't reflect him well to becoming sons and daughters of the most high God. And the resurrection reminds us of our intimacy with him. On Good Friday, we hear the passage of scripture that reminds us that when Jesus breathed his last, the veil and the temple was torn from top to bottom, showing us the access that he gives us to God. And the writer of Hebrews says that when he entered into that temple, he made that sacrifice once and for all so that we could come into the Holy of Holies, that we could come into the presence of God. And we don't simply do that as worshipers. We do that as children. And so the resurrection reminds us of the closeness and the intimacy that we have with God. And so this morning, as we make that declaration that Christ is risen, you are also proclaiming the truth that I belong to God. And he has not only saved me, but has brought me in to his family as his child. If Christ is risen, we are forgiven. Verse 17, Paul says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And that is a horrifying thought. When I looked at this verse, I immediately thought of elementary school. And I don't know if this was the case at every elementary school, but for a few years, we always had a dentist that would come once a year. And the dentist would bring these little packages, right? Had a toothbrush, had some toothpaste, maybe a little mouthwash, but it also had these tablets that kind of looked like chewable Tylenol. And so what you would do is you would brush your teeth 
And then after you were done, you would chew these tablets and then all the places that you missed, it would turn your teeth black. And you would realize, I did a terrible job brushing my teeth today. On a much more disgusting level, also when you watch those, those Dateline kind of news shows about hotels that get shut down and they go in, the first thing they do is they turn off all the lights and they turn the black light on and it's horrifying and disgusting and you see all the places where the hotels missed cleaning. I also thought of another example of this that's a new one because most of my life, I thought I've done a pretty good job washing my hands. In fact, I would go into public restrooms and they'd have those little instructions about how to wash their hand and I would openly mock that. Like, who doesn't know how to wash their hands? Obviously, you wash, you just do this from the very beginning. But once all of, all of this stuff with COVID-19 has come out and the importance of washing hands, you see people doing these demonstrations where they squirt some stuff on their hands and they show you how we normally wash our hands and a whole bunch of your hand is not washed. And so I've thought more about how I wash my hands than ever at any point in the history of my life. And if Christ had not been raised, it's like we're chewing those tablets. It's like we're, we're cleaning and we're washing our hands, but when you turn the black light on, all of a sudden we see how really sinful we truly are and that there is nothing we can do to wash that away. But in Christ, you are forgiven. And that phrase is more beautiful than the former is awful because Jesus doesn't expect us to wash our hands until they're clean. But Jesus got down on his hands and knees and washed the feet of his disciples. And the same Christ who washed the feet of his disciples went to the cross, took our sin and our shame, went to the tomb and took on our death and came out and brought us life. And not only that, but he brings us forgiveness that he himself washes us. And we have that reminder in the picture of baptism that Jesus washes us clean, totally immersing us in his grace and mercy. And on the other side, we come out forgiven, washed white as snow. And that forgiveness brings us freedom inclusion into the family and the people of God and the power to be able to stand boldly in his presence. And as we say every week during our confession and assurance, if Christ is raised from the dead and if you've trusted in him, then you can know that your guilt is pardoned and your sins are forgiven through the blood of Christ. And that promise is sealed by his resurrection. And you can know that you are forgiven and let go of that sin and that shame and that guilt and walk with Christ in perfect freedom. And then finally, if Christ is raised, we have hope, both now and forever. In verse 18, Paul says, then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And he says that in the midst of this very downcast monologue he's got going. And it's easy to look at these people who live their life as Christians in selfless obedience and selfless sacrifice for the good of others, living in community, all of these things, trusting in Christ. And then they died. And there's this weird kind of paraphrase of Pascal's wager that I hear coming out of the lips of Christians a lot. Probably something that I've uttered in my life too, where we look at someone who doesn't believe in Christ and we say, well, you know, if, if I believe in Jesus and you don't, and then we both die and Jesus turned out to not be real, 
Then we both die. No big deal. Not a whole lot of a gamble there, right? But if I'm right and Christ is who we say he is and I live my life for Jesus and sacrifice and abandon and you don't and then we both die, then the, the risk and reward is much greater. So you should just believe anyway. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is not something that we participate in just on the hopes that we might escape hell. And also Christianity is a pretty terrible ideology to abide by if it isn't true. And yet that seems to be the principle on which we've based our entire, at least the, the predominant theme of our country's existence. This country that we say is one nation under God is really kind of born and based out of this cultural American Christian-ish religion that's really more about morality and following the rules and doing the right things and living good Christian principles more than it is actually trusting in the death and resurrection of Christ himself. And the reality is, even if we live our lives looking like a good Christian, and if we're obedient and we're sacrificial and we go to church sometimes and we don't do the bad things that we're not supposed to do and we do the good things that we're supposed to do, but Christ has not been raised, then we have wasted our life because that kind of morality without the resurrection is absolutely worthless. But saving faith that comes through the resurrected Christ, well, that changes us from the inside out. That calls us to a life of radical obedience and sacrifice. But not only for this life here and now, because Paul says, if in this life only we've hoped in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. And yet he says that, no, no, Christ has been raised from the dead. So not only are we able to live the way that Christ has called us to live in this life and know that it is good, but also we have the promise that we have an eternal life with Christ that will reward us for all of these things earned by Christ alone. Our enemy is totally fine with us holding a partial gospel. This idea of Christian conduct without Christ, because that's really no gospel at all. There's no life change that comes through that but the full resurrection-powered gospel is a deeper truth. It's a better hope, and it's the only way to salvation. Paul says, For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. That includes anyone who's put their faith in Christ. He says, for in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and authority and power. Paul says that is our hope. Then not only will we live in Christ, but we die in Christ and we will be given to the Father for all of eternity. And so we need to put away our useless morality for the sake of morality. We need to put away this idea that we're just supposed to be Christians because mom and dad are Christians or because grandma and grandpa are Christians or because that seems to at least to a certain degree still be part of the American way. We go to church every now and then. We go to church on Easter. We go to church on Christmas. We just live and process through this life. But we need to put all of that aside and begin because Paul says, remember in verse three, the first importance is the resurrection of Christ. And anything that we have that looks like Christianity that is not rooted and established in the resurrection is worthless. 
And so we need to cling to the resurrection. We need to build our lives on it. We need to stake our eternity on the reality of the resurrection because Christ is risen indeed. Jesus Christ died for our sins and was buried but on the third day was raised again in accordance with the scriptures by the power of God. And for anyone who puts their faith and hope in Jesus, that ripple effect of your life is something beyond imagination that Christ will take what is broken and dead within us, save us, forgive us, establish our steps so that we can walk in good works, not as a way to earn our salvation, but as a way to worship God and to proclaim the gospel. And then one day when our work is done, he will call us into his kingdom saying, well done, my good and faithful servants. And he'll resurrect us not only spiritually, but physically. And we will be with Christ forever perfected and glorified with no stain or trace of sin, guilt, shame, or death. So I want to encourage you this morning. If you've never put your faith and hope in Jesus, then know that the resurrection is not a myth, but a historical reality where God put his seal on salvation and that anyone who puts their faith and hope in Christ will be resurrected spiritually. That's what salvation is. We'll be forgiven from all of our sins, past, present, and future by the God who is, who was, and who is to come. And he will fit us for eternity. We'll have eternal life with him. If you're watching and you are a follower of Christ, I want to encourage you to not neglect the resurrection. It's easy to do not out of maliciousness, but just out of comfort. We say Christ is risen, Christ is risen, Christ is risen to the point where sometimes it rings a bit hollow. But Christ is risen, risen from the dead. And because of that, your faith is not futile and you have nothing to be pitied, but you do have work to do to proclaim the good news of the gospel and the resurrection as often as you can, with boldness, with courage, with passion, with joy. Because Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Let's pray. Almighty God, I just ask that you forgive me for the times when I don't believe in the resurrection. God, there more often than, than I say. But even more often than that are the times when I believe and don't care and I'm not moved. God, don't ever let us be comfortable with the reality of resurrection. Help us to cling to it to grab a hold of Christ's resurrection. And we thank you that you did it in time and space and history so that we can know that it is a reality. But God, we hope for his return and in kind our resurrection. And so as we cling on to Christ, let us hope for our own. And in the in-between, help us to be proclaimers of that truth. 
And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.